The Financial Planning South Africa podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. All discussion is limited to publicly available information and should not be interpreted as legal, professional or financial advice. Hi, I'm Louis van der Merwe, Certified Financial Planner. Join me every week where I get to have discussions with global leaders in the financial planning space to help you serve your clients better and run a more efficient financial planning practice. This is Financial Planners South Africa podcast. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion for people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. Comspace is a revenue management solution developed specifically for independent financial advisors. It is a web-based application that tracks, allocates, and manages advisor revenue. The system seamlessly reads commission statements from financial institutions and can address any permutation of commission splits. Comspace provides mind-blowing, out-the-box revenue business intelligence and analytics, along with super-flexible reporting to effectively manage and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Financial Planners South Africa. Today in the studio, I have with me Brandon Els. Brandon has a string of qualifications. He is a career changer. He is someone that challenges the default and the norm. And I look forward to a very interesting conversation. Brandon, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks, Louis. It's really nice to be with you today. As we were just chatting and setting up for this conversation, we've had quite a few of these conversations in the past around kind of advisor defaults, you know, looking back saying this is the way things have always been done and we will just continue doing them. For someone that came from a different career, give us a little bit of the backstory of what that was and and what your experience was entering financial planning. Yeah, so I studied at UCT for a for a long time. Um chopped and changed a little bit, but kind of landed on economics, but financial economics specifically. So I always really enjoyed the the, the technical side of, of of economics and finance with the idea that I would be a fund manager. That was basically my dream when I left university. So I wanted to be an equity analyst and work my way up to to managing money. So that was that was kind of the idea. Um, but just happened to graduate in the middle of the global financial crisis and was in London and there were very few opportunities. So I uh, found myself in more sort of research type roles, like research and development type roles. So not specifically in the finance world, um, which led me to a, a whole career in politics and working in parliament for, for six years, at, specifically as a financial researcher. So um, it was, yeah, it was, I guess, a, almost a, a full decade of being in that space where I, I kind of realized that um, I had been on the right track originally. I, I, I really did love finance, but specifically personal finance matters, and had just found myself getting more and more into that and, and actually then worked with a coach for, for a while who, who really made me think a little bit about what was possible. And he, importantly, I think he put me in front of a lot of interesting people and those conversations really shifted my perspective. And so I kind of sat with one individual in particular and I thought, well, that's what I want to do. And so decided to make kind of a big leap into the, the this world of financial planning or financial advice. What a shift. I mean, you are a chartered financial analyst, and I can see how that fits into the picture of becoming a money manager. And yet, 
this coaching conversation made a shift. We often hear that financial planners should be putting on coaching hats and we should have that conversation. Was this your expectation when working with a coach or kind of what led to that? Yeah, I think sometimes, I mean, at the time I, I was less clued up about the role of coaching and advice. I wasn't really thinking at it from that perspective. I, I kind of, I went into that process with a very open mind I mean, to the extent that I was prepared to go back to university and study for another six years to do something else. I just realized that we spend a lot of time at work and I couldn't tolerate 20, 30 years doing something that I, that didn't give me energy. And I, I could kind of play the movie forward and see that it would lead to a, a quite a unhappy bitter person, I think. So it was a, a kind of, a, I, ha I had to make the move. So for the, I think the challenge is when you get into a role where you are relatively senior and you're in particular, if you're getting paid quite well, it becomes really, really challenging to, to, to walk away from that. And so I needed somebody external from me to, um, I, to, to, to kind of open up the world of possibilities. And it's, it's very interesting just having conversations with him and then leading to, um, him connecting me with different people in the industry. I spoke to brokers and BDMs and, uh, fund managers and everybody under the sun. And I, I kind of that fear started to fall away and actually it was replaced with excitement. And I thought that was such a interesting mind shift to notice. And it, I, I couldn't have done it without working with, with, with that coach in particular. He was the right coach at the right time for me. So, um, yeah, and by the time I had, had made the decision, I was absolutely, there was no doubt in my mind that it was the right thing to do. We have this idea of the sunk cost fallacy, right? So we've put in so much work, working towards a specific career. And then to change that, I mean, how difficult was that? You've spoken now a little bit about exploring it and, and getting familiar with what the potential options are. How long did that take you and, and kind of what was your biggest fear at that point? Yeah, about, about a year, to be honest. The, my biggest fear was, I mean, I'd achieved a level of financial freedom that I didn't see around me. And there are other things I like to do. So I'm a big uh, lover of travel and travel's not cheap. And so, yeah, I lived, I lived a good life in that respect. And it was the idea that, yeah, walking away from some of those benefits and I, and I knew it was a commitment moving into the space, because as you know, you don't necessarily walk into, you know, big salaries. It's, it's, it's a totally different mindset. I've never worked. Uh, I've never worked in a role that required a commission or a sales. At least that's how it was pitched to me initially, which, which I don't think it is, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was the, that was the, the risk for me, but it, it was a kind of a five year plan when I moved. That was my view. I, I, I'm not someone who's materialistic, but I figured it would take me roughly five years to get back to where I, where I thought I would be. But I just, you know, money is one thing and I've, I've lived the experience of, uh, having your income double a few times in a short space of time. And it certainly, it didn't equate to, me, you know, being happier or certainly productivity didn't equate to productivity. So I've, I kind of know that I'm not primarily motivated by money. It's obviously important, but I was seeking, I was seeking that, that energy. And, you know, it's, it's, it's having worked alongside a few people who had that, I knew that I could never compete with somebody who was ju just, just interested, absolutely, you know, absolutely fascinated by the, the field that they were working in. And I wanted that. Because, um, yeah, I just felt like I had a lot of potential. But, you know, you, you can be in a role and not feel that passionate about it and just kind of cruise. And I, I just thought that was a shame. This is quite interesting. And I think it's worthwhile for us to chat about because the industry and, you know, some might call it a profession, 
often uses the financial incentive as a reason for people to get into this business. But what I've seen time and time again with conversations is that the people that really are in it to help people tend to put in more hours. They tend to be more successful over time. And what, it sounds like your experience was was similar. What's your view on what it takes to to be a successful financial planner in, in where we are now? Yeah, I mean, no, I think... I think what you're saying is very true. And I suppose it's a difference between a, an advisor or a business that focuses on, you know, on, on a sort of has a sales approach or getting, getting flows or rands through the door. Um, I, to me, that's an outcome. It's an outcome of, as you say, doing the right things. And I think you would be, it's, it's a smarter strategy to focus on the, the causal uh, links between, between, you know, what, what leads to you putting in those extra hours or going the extra mile or, upskilling in this area or whatever it may be. And I think it's an intangible thing, but I, I've, I've sort of, I've seen it with some, some advisors and I, and I don't see it with a lot of advisors. It's just, there is this, this uh, fascination and interest in the, in the field and, and uh, this desire to learn. So it's like, I become very, if I learn about a particular fact, I want to go down that rabbit hole. I want to follow it to its conclusion. And I mean, that, but that's, I have a very analytical mindset, but yeah, I suppose to answer your question, what does it take to be successful? I mean, I don't think there's, I don't think there is any one way to do it, but I do think a challenge. I mean, this industry faces a number of challenges, but I mean, one of them is obviously the the sort of remuneration model for new advisors. Is the fact the fact is that the the kind of legacy way of thinking about it is still that what we are are fundamentally brokers. So we we broker transactions for products, which is salesman salesperson. Um, and it's the transition from that, I think, into an advice space where it is where essentially products are incidental to an advice process. And actually, you're now, now you're a professional who, who consults and you advise somebody and it's independent of products. So that's where I think we're heading. But I think as long as we have the sort of sales mindset and a lot of businesses operate this way, which is fine, maybe, you know, that's their particular business model that um, it's tough for somebody, you know, you're not going to attract, in my opinion, the best and brightest from the universities if you're offering them no basic or a little basic and it's all com-based. You, you are, I can tell you the guys I studied with the UCT, nobody wanted to be a financial planner, not one. And that's, that's the truth. So I, I don't, that's where it is at the moment. I don't, it's sad because I think it's a profession that's, that's arguably the most important profession going forward, but I'm, I'm a bit biased. So I think that's one challenge. And then the other, the, the other challenge is once you get an advisor through the door, you know, there's an expectation that this guy is going or guy or girl is going to be good at everything. And that I think I, I've just seen that it's just not true. And, and not only that, I think it's as a, as a, as a, as a business model, it's, it's fraud. I mean, effectively you get advisors through the door. They're meant to be technical experts. And, you know, my bar for being a technical expert is, is very high. So I think, and I do, I think to be a good advisor, you need to know a heck of a lot about a heck of a lot. It's, it is not easy. And it is a, it's a, almost a lifetime dedication to like advanced learning. Uh, there's just so much to know. You're learning, you're learning all the time. So you, you're expected to have that. You're also expected to have coaching skills and a, a toolbox to interact successfully in front of clients and there's an emotional intelligence aspect to that and on top of that you're expected to be a professional business developer and networker where you're going out there and establishing relationships with personal networking centers of influence and i just i think for most people it's unrealistic it's just it's um, mission impossible and i just think 
And then, you, you know, you're going to bring that person in and, and not pay them a salary or pay them something, something very small. And I think it's no wonder that you get the, the kind of dropout rates and the churn that we see. I so agree with you. I mean, we we say that the technical expertise is important, yet we remunerate for relationships and the broking of transactions. And mm. there's a disconnect between mm-hmm. the two. Now, yeah. you mentioned that you go down these rabbit holes and you explore a topic really deep. Out of the numerous topics and, and areas that you have explored, which one surprised you the most? Which one did you think... I'm going to go down this road. I don't really know if it's going to be valuable for my conversations with clients or my everyday life, maybe as a person or as a financial planner that uh, looking back, you said, ah, oh, actually, I'm, I'm really glad I did that. Probably, or just purely from a technical perspective, if you, you're kind of asking what area do I think has the most bang for buck, I'd probably say tax planning. Uh, it's, it's interesting because it's not, it, it, is, it actually does serve as somewhat of a differentiator because I think a lot of, uh, I know a lot of wealth management businesses don't necessarily do a detailed tax assessment. So sort of pre and post recommendations. And I think it's very, very powerful. Um, not, not only is it beneficial for the client, but I think it's, it's a great way to, to demonstrate value. So, uh, and, you know, but as I say, tax is deep, you know, it's <laughs> when you start talking, you can personal tax and then the corporate tax side. And then, you know, you've, you've just gone through the whole, the trust side and then, uh, cross-border stuff, it, it gets it gets really complicated. But I do think there's a lot of value that can be added there. And I think as a financial planner, you're you're very well placed to advise and just see opportunities for clients. So probably the tax side, yeah. So how did you hone that skill? Because yes, you can become a chartered accountant, which I'm sure you could do in your spare time. But I'm guessing if you don't want to go that route, how did you develop it? And uh, what would the types of conversations be with a client? Like, what are the things that you would talk about? I'm guessing it's more than just, oh, there's a deductibility on your retirement contributions. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's it's interesting. You can give two people the same book to read and then you can quiz them afterwards and you can get quite quite a different. And that's why I said to you earlier, it's, I mean, yeah, so some people, I guess, are, are very good at, at retaining and processing information. They're very analytical. Um, but I also think there's a level of... Um, of engagement with material and that's this sort of interest and contemplation while you read. So it's, 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 you know, I read and I'm thinking about it and then I'm intrigued oh, but what about that angle? You know, then I'll go chat to the expert and say, well, have you thought about this? How does this work? And then you get a bit of feedback. And so actually I look, a lot of it started with the CFP material, the postgrad diploma in financial planning and, and um, which I found just very, very interesting. So I really do enjoy tax. So it it started there, um, and it's just yeah, it's just it's just further and further engagements. But as I say, I know a lot of people have gone through the CFP space, and maybe they don't necessarily use it or is not not as interested. But um, that's kind of to my point earlier, where I think it's it's just there is something to be said about getting energy from a certain uh, a certain area or space, and it's it's that that intangible that I think drives you to seek more information. Um, and then yeah, on the client side. Uh, look, we, so, I mean, we have a fairly systematic um, advice framework, as I call it, that we engage with clients on. But I think earlier, early in the conversations, I mean, I, there are a few areas in which I would, I would simply phrase it as a question to a client, you know, have you got a strategy around X or strategy around Y? Um, which I, I usually know the answer is no, but it's, it is just an opportunity to, that to demonstrate. Do you have a strategy around minimizing the amount of tax you pay or how do you phrase that? What, like, what are the words that you use? It's not as scripted as I would like, but it does. T- yeah, it does tend to be a little bit opportunistic. I mean, I might, 
Um, oh, for example, if there's a, a, a clients who haven't contributed to retirement funds at any point and they're over the age of 55, I'll ask them, you know, have, have you ever contributed? Have you thought about making a, a single lump sum contribution and then retiring to a living annuity and cashing out just to get the tax deduction? That, that small little strategies like that, it's something I used in the last week. And clients are that interested in. They're like, well, I know that's because, I mean, that's just money in their pocket. So, I mean, I've added value almost immediately. And it's nice. It's, it's, it's nice to do that early on in a relationship. Obviously, if we're trying to, we're, we're trying to onboard this client. And yeah, so that's just, I guess that's one way. But the, the, the sort of more, the deeper tax assessments, we do full tax assessments for, for every individual and every couple. And I've never worked with a client uh, where we weren't able to, to reduce their effective tax rate. It's, I haven't seen it yet. I'm guessing this is not something clients expect. You know, they don't come to you to reduce their tax bill. Do they see you as a technical expert? Do they see you as a sounding board? How is it that your clients would describe the relationship they have with you? Yeah, to be honest, it's, it's, it's something we... I think we'd like to ask them that a little bit more often than we than we than we do, and I think it would be interesting to hear what they say. Um, so, I mean, look, certainly I am of the belief that, yeah, you know, first and foremost, what we are offering is a technical service. So that, that's the first thing. So I think we add value by being technically excellent. So it, it is it is a it is something that I, it's a priority for me, and it's something that I spend a lot of time on. But having said that, I have also learned that. The, it's very rare that the client's going to be in a position to interrogate your technical skill. So, and, and nor, nor should you expect the client to pat you on the back at any point and go, wow, you're, I really liked how you did that with this, you know, little tweak here and you saved me X amount. Like we've, we've done great things for clients in the past and they, to be honest, they still don't necessarily understand <laughs> how much thank you money so much saved. for optimizing yeah. my efficient frontier is <laughs> not yeah. a card no, you no, get no. in the, in the mail. Exactly. So they, they, those two things are true simultaneously. But and then then it becomes it's it's uh, there's, I said there's always a little bit of like marketing theater around your interaction with clients. And so there's the com- telling them or, or information that's genuinely useful. And then and then there's the obviously the coaching element around adherence and making them feel heard and making them own the plan and those sorts of things. But but still uh, and because I, I have heard this to some degree in certain forums where I don't want to get, I think people are getting confused about that. That's not to say that the technical stuff is not important. I, I think it's crucial and we mustn't lose sight of the fact that that is actually where we add a tremendous amount of value. I just think you've got to have both, but I can't, I didn't, that I didn't realize, I think early on in my career and it's taken just, you know, repeated interactions with clients to understand that, yeah, they don't, they're not, um, they're not going to appreciate my insights on their anti-nuptial contracts or that, that's not necessarily where, where they'll feel the value, I think. Do you think we've moved too far to the coaching side? Because with the conversations that I've had recently, it almost pops up everywhere. Yet, I've also seen financial plans that are technically very average or, or by, by and large incorrect, right? So we never interrogate another financial planner's financial plan. Yet we say, oh, go and speak to that person because they deliver excellent financial planning. Yet, how do we know? No. Yeah. How do we solve this? Like in, in an ideal world where we could say, cool, let's figure out a system to gauge the quality of an advisor's financial plan, maybe to signal to clients or maybe just to improve our profession. How would you tackle a challenge like that? And I know this is a very left field question, but yeah. 
your no, it is, it is. It's something I've thought about. Um, I've thought about recently because I've noticed that when advisors get together in whatever forum, uh, it's seldom that the conversations are actually on the technical side. I, it tends to be more about practice management and business models and fee models and. I think that that's where a lot of the time spent, and it's it's actually that's I'm less interested in in that side of it. Certainly, you know, the tech space, and I don't have a lot of passion for that, to be honest. I, I'm very much interested in the technical side, but and and, I, and there's also an assumption that well, you know, you did your CFP, so we've all got the technical skills. Now that I I, I find that very interesting because. I just don't think that could be further from the truth. I actually, I think there is a relative, I mean, this is anecdotal, but I think that there is probably a, a fairly wide distribution of, of skills. And, and it's simply for the, simply for the reason that I, I, as I said to you earlier, I just think there's so much to know in this space. Um, yeah, pick, pick any of retirement planning or estate planning or tax planning. You could dedicate your whole career to going down those rabbit holes. I mean, and they do in the States. I mean, you do, you have professors of retirement income planning, for example. So, I, I don't think, um, you know, to say that you, you know, you're at the CFP board and, and now we've, we've all got this sort of fun, this, it's a foundation for sure, but it, it's never enough in my sense. It's, I don't think I've answered your question at all. So what was your, what was no, I mean, there's, we have continuous professional development that says, yeah. oh, we've done a few points yet. Is that effective? My question is, how do we, rate the quality of a financial plan within the profession so that we can say this person delivers a high quality financial plan. Mm. Is there a way? Is it, is that even necessary? Um, I'm not sure, but I, I think I do agree with you that uh, once you go down the rabbit hole of further studying beyond the CFP, you realize that the CFP is not the ultimate. It is a starting point in my opinion. Mm -hmm. No, I, I would say at least 50% of what I know is of, from books that I've read from, you know, the various world experts on the retirement planning and tax planning or whatever it may be. So it's the CFP was a, was a good foundation, but to your point, we've, because, because uh, advisors don't actually speak all that much about their, their, their philosophies and principles are, are on techn the technical side, because I will say one thing, I don't think there's necessarily one approach to financial planning. I don't think that's true. I think there are a number of legitimate approaches or strategies that one could make an argument for. Uh, and, and I would I would go, okay, I can understand your logical reasoning for doing that. But we, we don't often get into it. And I think, um, yeah, where, where I have, it's just been through conversation. So, it, you know, for example, we could, you know, you could unpack, pack, how do you think about um, tying in a risk assessment to a, a portfolio? I mean, how, how do you link one to the other? And, and what's the point? Why would you do that? You know, I'd, I'd like to hear somebody's thinking around that. But because uh, a lot of the stuff is on some level kind of philosophical. That's where you start. So I, I, what is your philosophy around this? Then you bring in the theory. Okay, what do we know? What does the evidence suggest about this? And then there's the very important, the behavioral component, especially from an investment perspective. So, for example, you could get stuck in the weeds arguing about passive versus active. But actually, at the end of the day, it's about sustainability. And is the client going to stick to a strategy? Okay, well, what goes into that? Yeah, to, to, I mean, I don't think there's any necessarily a formal way of doing it, but I, 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 I certainly would love to have more conversations about that because I think we would, yeah, we would learn a lot from each other. I think, uh, and, and again, I don't think there's necessarily one approach. Almost like academic debates around, you know, what are these elements of financial planning? Because we, we're not really seeing that in South Africa, or at least not that I'm aware of. I want to chat about, 
your investment specific designations that you hold and how that's shaped the way you deliver investment specific advice. So you hold the CFA designation, you hold the CIIA designation. How has that shaped your investment specific conversations? Do you tend to go a lot more detailed with clients? Do you have discussions around which single equity or single shares to buy? Or do you think it's brought your you're planning to maybe a, a slightly different approach than someone that doesn't hold those designations? Yeah, so interestingly, it, it, it probably hasn't had the effect that you would think. So we, where you say sort of getting into the weeds on securities and I, I don't do that and for a good reason. So I, I am, um, so it's two things. It's actually, it's that and my, my previous career as, a, as an economist effectively, right? I got the opportunity to engage with, um, what I would call actual economists. So, you know, people who work for the South African Reserve Bank or National Treasury or the IMF or the World Bank and, and, and certain, um, uh, nonprofit or research organizations. So I, and I've worked closely with some, some outstanding individuals who are economists. So I, I know what a, an economist looks and sounds like. And I've got the academic background there. And I'm, a, I'm kind of acutely aware of, of the standard and of the level. And it's the same thing I said earlier. Those guys are dedicating their lives to a very a very particular subject and becoming a subject matter experts on something niche. And so when I moved into this space, it, it is a, a very interesting phenomenon where you see people w- without that background talking about the macroeconomy. And I mean, to me, the macroeconomics, is in, it's incredibly complex when you want to talk about mechanisms and all that. So it's... So, I, I kind of became quite quite wary of doing that with clients. So certainly I couldn't do it credibly. I didn't feel good about the conversations I was having with clients. If I'm sitting there and I'm trying to pretend that I understand why, you know, the current account surplus has moved 1% or it's not a credible exercise. And I said, I've, I've always said to advisors, I don't think you need to do that, but there is the view in the space that you do need to do that. And I think part of it is, Guys are desperate to demonstrate value. And I think they think that one of the ways they do that is by confusing people. And, you know, it's, I've seen this. If people who understand a subject incredibly well are able to communicate it really succinctly, very, very simply. And, and it's so rare because there are so few people who deeply understand a particular subject. So I just can't sit in front of a client and talk about this stock or that stock. And I know that I haven't put in the, you know, the, the 50 or a hundred hours that it would take to do a thorough analysis of that. So I'm, I don't play, I don't go into that space. And I'm very clear about the fact that I, what I do is a, I'm a financial uh, uh, planner and I see that as a distinct profession and an asset manager is a separate profession. But what it, what it has done um, has given me the, I would say a strong kind of theoretical understanding of, of of markets and assets and how assets are priced in particular, which is not well understood at all, actually, by advisors especially. And so that that helps me to have, I would say, better conversations with clients, but the challenge is always to try and communicate with them in a, in a simple way. And it's it my previous role was that. I would try to communicate complex matters to members of parliament, and it is the hardest job in the world to try and talk about bond markets. What is a bond? How does it, you know... It's, it's, it's never, it never gets easier, but yeah, I would say, I mean, it's a lot of studying to basically say, I feel like I have a very strong theoretical foundation, but I don't talk. And and as I said, I don't go into, we don't talk stocks. We actually hardly ever talk about investment performance these days. It's just not, it's not really core to what we do. 
I mean, part of me want to argue that it's because you've gone through this that you have the confidence to to not have to talk about it, to say, well, I, I, I do have these skills and we can have that conversation, but yet I found that it's more helpful for the client to not have those conversations, right? So you've replaced politicians with end clients. And, and it's a fascinating area, to kind of just this idea of simplifying things. And I, I think that by itself, is a deep rabbit hole that we're probably not going down enough, right? Mm. Like taking this really complex element, like like tax planning, for instance, where there's a lot of emotion around it. It's like fear, I'm going to end up in jail. Um, and just holding someone's hand and saying, hey, we can, we can sort this out and we can optimize it. It doesn't just have to be sorted out. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. It's a... Uh... You know, even with our proposals and our reviews, it's, um, you know, I came from a space where we would produce these big, thick documents and there was a, a lot of technical analysis. And, and again, all great from a, and necessary from a record of advice perspective. Um, it's great for me as the, the, the analyst. When I go back to it in six months, I can understand where my thinking was. But, but as I said earlier, there's a big difference between that and the background and the, the what, what is presented to the client. So, you know, I, I know use you know like sort of a one-page types and type thing. I think is makes a lot of sense. Um, we've we've moved in that direction as well, and it's it's yeah, it's very. I, I say it's high level. That's my default now. It's, it's high level with clients, and if they want to double click on a subject, we can go down into the weeds. But to be honest, it's very rare. And if anything, I've had clients beg me not to give them theory anymore. They don't want the theory. I had that two weeks ago. Don't, don't tell me the investment theory. Don't. So, so, you know, it's, um, I'll bet you not to know. Yeah. 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 Just don't know. I trust you. I trust you. Just don't give me a, so it's, it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's sad because I, you know, I love to talk about that sort of thing. I think that, but it's true. The truth is it's not, obviously it's not important to the clients. As you know, a lot of them come in with the, I find the one thing is that a lot of clients have a sense, like they don't have control, especially the, the wealthier clients or everybody, I suppose for that matter. But, and I think, that's what we're trying to do. It's that it's that sense. It's under control. We've considered every aspect we possibly can. And in one page, this is what we've looked at. Okay, these are the main points. What would you say is the most challenging part in your in your career now, dealing with clients? Like what do you feel is the thing that comes up the most that clients want to talk about or need to talk about that's kind of really, really important? Other than regulation and politics to take mm. those two off the table yeah i mean that's really uh, kind of two different answers if you if you if you say what are the, for me personally something that i and i notice i get frustrated quite quickly but i have to obviously i have to manage that and i have also have to manage my inclination to argue which is not helpful is 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 actually around investment discussions because especially with what we do there's definitely been a there's a perception firstly of what of, of what we are and I think we are perceived to be investment brokers so that's that's something we deal with all the time so so clients want to talk product and it's not a conversation I, I like to have after until at least we've had other conversations so, would you put that under kind of wealth management hey you're a wealth manager or yeah. how would you define that yeah exactly so I mean you, you know that the, in this industry the titles are meaningless so you can call yeah. yourself whatever you want. So just, the, but this, but for whatever reason, if you're a wealth manager, I, th I think the perception is sort of that it's a little bit more, I don't know. Prestige. I, yeah. More prestige than just, you know, a broker or an advisor. But I mean, again, none of it really means anything. You can call yourself whatever you like, but I do think when we position ourselves as a sort of wealth management, it's okay. Investment broker, you're here to talk about investments, products, and performance. How's my money doing? 
yeah, how's my money doing? You know, and 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 I I, I do get frustrated um, because I I guess oh, I just see a bigger picture there. I mean, I, what I see are, are essentially spending goals that a client needs to, depending on what what they tell us, they value. They give us their values, and we've got spending goals, and I'm trying to help them get there. And that's and there's a lot that goes into that. And but then I get I feel like I'm kind of getting dragged into almost the past, the old way of thinking, and I almost so I do. And, and, and yeah, I think that's sort of what frustrates me. But then the other question, sort of what would clients, what should they be considering? I, I, I wish that, I guess my wish is that they came into the conversations with a little bit more of a, an open mind to the interconnectedness of, of, of all of their different goals. So they could see how long-term healthcare planning is crucial, actually, and affects their investment planning and legacy planning and so it's, I, it's the big picture that I, I kind of wish they they could appreciate, but it, it, it often it'll just go straight to that investment conversation, and then and then there's a big responsibility on us to frame the conversation differently. And I've we've you know just in this new business, I've been I suspected this was true, and it has proven to be true. But a, a, a large part of the of the nature of the conversations that we have with clients depend on our framing. And you really can frame the engagement differently from the first meeting and going forward. As long as you're consistent and you have a particular way of communicating and presenting what you do, you can have totally different conversations with clients. And I can't tell you how many advisors don't believe that's true. They'll believe that you must, you know, you, you, clients know that they love a little bit on the macro economy. You know, we've got love a little bit. Of, no, they don't. They actually don't. They, it's, it's you are, you framed your value from the first meeting in that way. And that is why those conversations are being had. So I'm I'm chuckling because I've gone through a similar journey and so kind of how I've had to deal with that is to not have up-to-date knowledge of economics or even literally what the markets are doing. And so now it's not a crutch that I can rely on to have a conversation and starting the conversation, asking your client, what are your expectations of today's meeting? How much time do we have? What's most important? And sometimes there's a list of 20 things. I'm like, okay, we can only deal maybe with one or two of these and which ones are, are most important. The, the part that you mentioned that intrigued me there is that you have a discussion around the client's values and then how their future spending aligns to that. Tell me about how you unpack their values. Is that something that you have a specific structure for? Is that something that you intentionally listen for? Or how do you uncover someone's values? Uh, so, so I can tell you in terms of our advice process, it's, it, that is an area I, I think we can get better at. And it's an area that I don't, I know we haven't, we certainly haven't got it to the point that I want it to be at. But effectively, it's, uh, you know, we have a, what's called a fit meeting and we will ask um, sort of open-ended questions. So, to, you know, a lot of the stuff out of um, Morris Omer's uh, advice that sticks and just getting the client to talk a little bit about, um, yeah, about what matters to them because because I we, we have this, the advice framework is basically if I can identify what we call their financial planning purpose, which is which is sort of a Kitsis Carl's type, type, type uh, framework where we get these values from them. Those values map onto spending goals. Those spending goals lead to future liabilities. Those future liabilities must be funded by assets. That's basically the framework. But the values, yeah, the values, it's, it's at this stage, it is, re- it is informal, but it's, it's trying to ask good questions that to some extent we've scripted beforehand and listening and trying to just listen for, uh, and it's difficult because you'll know, I mean, uh, 
you know, you don't, certainly with some clients, you're, you're not going to get the most um, detailed or emotive answers there. So uh, it, it, it can be tricky. And it's, I guess it's learning better ways to probe there. But no, I wish we, I've, I've looked for, um, perhaps there are better or more formal ways to do that. And I, and I really would like to develop that, that side of it because we, what we're, what I'm trying to do in my presentation of our reviews and proposals is trying to link all of our recommendations back to a value. You know, you said it was important that your surviving spouses looked after one day. Okay. That is why we re- that is why we're recommending ABC because it, it ties it in nicely and it, it kind of, they take a sense of the ownership of those recommendations, which improves um, adherence and, 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 and shows that we're adding value because that's the way it should be. I mean, this is actually what matters to them. So we have to tie the recommendations back, but um, yeah, not as formal as I would like. There is something worthwhile checking out. It's called values in action inventory. It's called the via character and it kind of tries to help you unpack what your values are. And it's a free assessment that anyone can do financial planners or clients and bring to the meeting. And and we've kind of been on this journey to explore different areas, value sorting, and yet still haven't found something that works hundred percent for us. But I'm curious when, when a value might come up, that's in contradiction with your own personal values. You know, you mentioned traveling and someone might say, ah, that doesn't really resonate with me. How easy it is to just, how easy is it to project our own values onto our clients? And so this is what should be important to you, right? Family, travel, these kind of things. Even, even when we talk about goal setting, right? How much of it is our own goals versus the clients versus, you know, what society dictates? Yeah. So no, I mean, absolutely. I think that's, that's very true. Um, I think from, I mean, from the analytical side, I'm usually very grateful when they express something like that because that gives me direction as far as the planning is concerned. I, that tends to be the way I think about it. I'd rather them say more than less. Uh, that That's harder. I actually just did a plan recently where there, I, I, there, there weren't a lot of values in my, you know, for me to go on. And that makes it really tricky because now I'm sort of guessing as to how I want to plan for them. And that's not ideal. Um, but you're right. I mean, no, I think that's I think that's a very natural response. I suppose you you'll always you know you'll weigh up what you hear relative to the way you think about something. And uh, I, I must say I haven't found it to obviously uh, be a problem, but I could I can understand how that it could certainly color my interactions with them going forward. That that is that is a possibility. Brandon, what's what's the next chapter for you? I mean, you you and David, uh, who was a previous guest on this podcast, have now started a business. The business is is up and running. When you look back ten years from now, what is it that you spent the last ten years building or improving that you think would be would have moved the needle? Yeah, I'm, I'm not. Um, I mean, David and I look probably a little bit different here, but I'm, I guess I'm not necessarily motivated by empire building. I don't have that in me it's not that important to me i basically wanted to create a vehicle for me to do what i love doing uh, and and add value and that's kind of our purpose is improving lives and we're very serious about that because that that really is yeah that's kind of at the heart of what we do at the same time i do think this is a very it's a very exciting time to do what we do because i i think this as we transition into the into a profession I think there's an opportunity for advisors to come forward with kind of fresh thinking and new ideas and different business models and really make a name for yourself in that space. So that's, I mean, I think when we look back, we've, you know, we've got a different way of, of charging that we think is, 
you know, more free of conflicts, more aligned with the with the client's interests. We've got an advice framework that I think is is very holistic, truly, not just a buzzword. And yeah, I guess no. I, for me, um, what what tends to matter more than the financial side, although we would like that as well, would be to to basically be viewed as an, a company that was sort of at the forefront, right? We were. We really kind of turned over a lot of the old, the old way of thinking about things, the old way of doing things. I, I must say that, to be, to be honest, that matters to me probably more than the, the, the kind of commercial success of it all. That sounds wonderful. And I'm 100% guaranteed that when we look back, you, you would have had a massive impact on how clients expect financial planning conversations to go. And there is this shift happening for the good or the bad, right? It's just a different section within the market. And to say, when, I, when I'm looking for someone like this, these are the businesses that I, can, that I can go to. Is there anything else you'd like to share as a parting note, um, as maybe as guidance to young financial planners that have just changed their careers or just maybe joining the profession? Uh, what, would, what would a little bit of hope uh, <laughs> sound like to them? Yeah, I think... Um... I mean, I, th- I think, I, I guess my, my view on, on what we do, there's, there's some, is really informed by sort of the, the some of the founders of, of the financial planning profession. So you read a guy like Richard Wagner, you know, he's somebody who thought very deeply about what, what a profession would look like. I mean, he called it phonology as this whole sort of theoretical, um, you know, like, like law and, you know, like the medical, the medical space. And I, yeah, I, I, I fundamentally believe that what we do is advice and it is, we're no different to a legal advisor or a medical advisor. Um, and I think there's, yeah, it's what are they say? High principles and advanced learning. That's what, that's what professions are about. And I think that's what we should be about. But I, I do recognize at the same time that it's, it is tricky if you think that way and you come into the space because you are going to meet you're going to face a lot of people who don't think that way. It's, it is, it is about sales. It is about numbers. It's about closing. It's about, but I think, yeah, I don't feel disheartened because I think there are practices out there who are like yours, like hopefully like ours, who are, who are taking on this new way of thinking. And I, and I think if you can find a, a space in one of those organizations, I think it's, it's the right way to go. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that financial planning 3.0 book uh, by Dick Wagner is def- definitely anyone listening. It's it's good reading. He was way ahead of his time, and yes. we have the benefit that we have this guidance, right? We don't have to remake it. And I love how you've said that high principles and advanced learning. I think mm. that uh, really is mm. those. I'm sure those words are used intentionally. And yes. thank you just so much for for the breadth of knowledge and the excitement and the passion that you share for this masterful financial planning. I wish you all the best with building the business and your financial planning endeavors. And thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks, Louis. And thanks again. I think what you're doing here is is awesome. I think we need to have more conversations like this. And uh, look forward to the next episode. The start of many. Yeah. Bye now. (laughs) Cheers.